Please stand for the reading of today's gospel lesson. In the book of Matthew, chapter 11, verses 2 through 11. John heard in prison that the Messiah, what the Messiah was doing. He sent word by his disciples and said to him, Are you the one who is to come, or are we to wait for another? Jesus answered them, Go and tell John what you hear and see. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the poor have good news brought to them. And blessed is anyone who takes no offense at me. As they went away, Jesus began to speak to the crowd about John. What did you go into the wilderness to look at? A reed shaken by the wind? What then did you go out to see? Someone dressed in soft robes? Look, those who wear soft robes are in royal palaces. What then did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I tell you, and more than a prophet. This is the one about whom it is written. See, I am sending my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way before you. Truly, I tell you, among those born of women, no one has arisen greater than John the Baptist, yet the least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Randy, thank you for reading our lesson, and uh, greetings to all of you in the name of Christ. Uh, We're so glad to be in worship today on this, the third Sunday of Advent, as has been mentioned, and uh, we're really excited about the music this evening with the orchestra, the chancel choir, and the freedom choir, and James, we hope that you can be with us as well uh, at 6.30 tonight. Uh, We'll bring the coffee and the massage, the masseuse, if you'll be here. We look forward to that and invite you to come early and invite a friend with you. Well, if you've been with us the last two weeks, you know that we're right in the thick of this series called Expecting. Uh, Now just 10 days, a week and a half from the day, the season of Advent, which means arrival, entrance, coming into, is to Christmas what Lent is to Easter. It's a time of preparation. And so we talked at the beginning about It means that we need to learn to expect the unexpected, and that means you have to live on ready, to be prepared, to live every day as though today may be the day. Last week we mentioned that not only do we have expectations of God, but God expects much of us, namely to bear fruit that is worthy of our repentance or said another way, to conduct ourselves in ways that match our confession. But today I want to talk on a different subject that perhaps is appropriate to this season. I want to talk about disappointed expectations. Every now and then there's something that happens in your life where there's an unexpected turn, there's a pothole, there's a detour or what may feel like an impasse or a dead end that threatens your hope, your peace, your joy. And sometimes 
compels us to feel the need to recalibrate in a little different way. At a moment like that on Friday evening, I was coming back from Nashville about 5.30, 6 o'clock on Friday night. And I made the mistake at first of not turning on Concord, thinking that I'd go all the way Franklin Road to Moores Lane. I quickly recalibrated and discovered there isn't a good way to negotiate Brentwood at 5.30 on a Friday afternoon. And sometimes you face moments like that where it seems maybe there's not a good way to get home. Several years ago, ABC News ran a story about two pastors in the southeast, both of whom were serving respectively local churches, and both pastors confessed on camera that they no longer believed the message that they were preaching. Their voices were altered, their faces blurred so as to protect their identity, their family, their churches. One of the pastors actually said, and I quote, I cannot afford to quit my position for financial reasons, so I'll keep on preaching until I find other work. One of the other pastors said my wife is unaware of my predicament, and if she knew about it, our marriage would likely crumble. And I sat there watching, not in a judgmental manner, but in a painful manner, thinking, surely there must be somebody seated in those pews who senses what's happening. I wondered, how, how do we fake faith? Now, it's one thing to deal with a member of the flock who may be struggling with their faith, but how do you shepherd a shepherd who has lost his way? How do you rehab a fickle priest? How do you recondition an ambivalent prophet? Such is the case, I think, Randy, in Matthew 11. And yet, in this case, John the Baptist, his ambivalence is not really from a lack of faith. It's because of disappointed faith. Now, maybe I need to say from the start what you're already thinking. Faith does not exempt one of us from doubt. Indeed, honest doubt is a genuine part of the faith journey. If you've tried to be a Christian for more than a week, you know that there will be hesitation, there will be doubt, there will be moments where questions come. Tennyson said, there lives more faith in honest doubt than in half the creeds. Freddie Beekner said, doubt is the ants in the pants of the faithful. In fact, you have to look no further than Matthew 28, verse 17, to see it in the disciples' life, that after the resurrection, they encountered Jesus, the risen one, and when they saw him, verse 17 says, they worshiped, but some doubted. Really? (laughs) Their own eyes? Sometimes a sincere question is the very thing that drives us to discover the reality of God's presence. And so I, for one, think that John the Baptist, in his doubt, did not turn away from Jesus. He turned to Jesus with his question. But it's painful. I mean, am, am, I, am I the only one in the room that doesn't feel the pain to, to hear a prophet 
who once proclaimed Jesus, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world. And now he's asking, are you the one? Or should we be looking elsewhere? I mean, you, you just don't expect that from a Baptist. From John, the Baptist, you don't expect that. Especially after last week, I mean, we read early in his ministry in Matthew 3, we saw him in the wilderness. He was the picture of self-confidence, emphatic, thundering in the desert, preaching with passion, repent, come to the water. The kingdom is at hand. The Messiah is very near. And people were coming They were coming from all over, Jerusalem, Judea, all over. In fact, there was a rabbi from Nazareth who came to the water. John tried to prevent him. It's you who ought to be doing me the honors, baptizing me. And Jesus said, no, let it be so for now. And Jesus waded into the water. John did the honors. And when he came up, something happened, and John saw it. The clouds parted. A dove descended and a voice said, this one's mine. This is my beloved with whom I'm pleased. And John was there. The fourth gospel even says that John pointed some of his followers to follow Jesus. In fact, there's a quote in John's gospel. John the Baptist said, I must decrease while he increases. But that was then. And now is now. Time has passed. John has gotten a little sideways with the government. He called out Herod Antipas, who's the ruler, the Tetrarch, they called him, of Perea and Galilee, and there was hell to pay. And suddenly, this prophet in the wilderness finds himself in a different kind of desert. From freedom in the wild to captivity in a cell. And such a shift in context can change your outlook on life. Suddenly, his rhetoric changes from the imperative to the inquisitive. His prophesying and preaching turns to questioning. And if you've ever been in jail or visited in jail, you know that incarceration can have that impact on your perspective. He can't help it. There's a question mark in his mind, and so what does he do? He still has a few friends who come to visit him. Most are positioning themselves as far away from him as they can. They're afraid that what happened to John will happen to them. And so he sends two or three friends to Jesus with the question. You the one to come? Are you the one we're expecting? Or should we be looking somewhere else? And when you think about it, this question is not just born of theological speculation. It's born of personal pain and introspection. Here's what John really means. Jesus, if you are the one to come, then why am I in this fix? If you're the light of the world, if you're the everlasting Prince of Peace, if you're mighty God, then why am I in this hole? The situation itself raises the question. Can't help it. Some of you have been there. You've believed. You've confessed. You've repented. 
You've preached, you've gone to Sunday school, you've been a part of the church, but why the diagnosis? Why the sickness? Why the addiction? Why the wayward child? Why the divorce? Why the captivity? Why the disappointment? I read an interesting verse the other day, Revelation 6, that says, even the martyred saints who have gone on before us sometimes stand before the throne and say, how long? How long, O Lord? Don't look now, but John is confined in a pit of disappointed expectation. I have an equation for disappointment. Disappointment is expectation divided by reality. It's what happens to us when expectation and reality collide, and sometimes it happens during this season, even in our own home. I think the problem, maybe with John, is that John wasn't expecting the kind of Jesus that Jesus turned out to be. John, like some of us, was expecting an ax. He said the ax is at the root of the tree, expecting fire, really hoping for fire and judgment, and Jesus is healing. He's reconciling. He's forgiving. I don't know if you've discovered it or not, but I have found that sometimes it's hard to let Jesus be Jesus. It was hard for the disciples. Some of them wanted a military Jesus. They wanted a swashbuckling Jesus, Jesus with a sheath, with a sword. Some wanted an armed Jesus. Some wanted a nationalistic Jesus. Others wanted only a social activist Jesus. Some wanted a personal salvation Jesus. Some want a prosperity Jesus. It's really the devil. It's so hard to, to let Jesus be Jesus. Dietrich Bonhoeffer studied for a year in New York before he was martyred in Nazi Germany. He came in 1939 to New York City to teach at Union Seminary, and while he was teaching, he decided on the Sabbath, on Sundays, to visit churches around the area, and he was terribly disappointed by what he heard. Disappointed by the preaching that he heard from the pulpits. In fact, he recorded this note in his journal one Sunday afternoon. One may hear sermons in New York on almost any subject, only I've noticed that one subject is seldom handled, namely the gospel of Jesus Christ of the cross of sin and forgiveness. It's hard to let Jesus be Jesus. But the problem is not with Jesus, the problem is with me. It's with you. It's with our expectations. Shakespeare said expectation is the root of all heartache, and it can be true. And I'll tell you what happens too often in our Christology. Let me make it personal. In my Christology, I often wind up creating a Christ who looks a lot like me, <laughs> rather than dying to myself so that I can be recreated in a way that looks like him. It's hard. You're the one to come? 
or is there another? Now, I want you to notice Jesus' response. He doesn't reprimand John. He doesn't scold him. He doesn't lecture him. He doesn't guilt him into denying the question. He says to these friends, here's what I want you to do. I want you to go to our brother who's held captive and share your witness. Don't teach him theology. Tell him your experience. Go tell John what you've heard and seen. Notice the sequence. Hearing comes first. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word. Matthew chapters 5 through 7, it's the teaching of Jesus, his signature sermon, Sermon on the Mount. Hear. And then Matthew chapters 8 through 10 is Jesus, the power of Jesus' ministry, seeing. Go tell him what you hear and see, your own experience. The blind are seeing, lame folks are walking, lepers cleanse, deaf are hearing, the dead are raised, and the poor have good news preached to them. By the way, if you didn't know, that is a direct reference to Isaiah chapter 35 and chapter 61, the prophecy of what would happen when the Messiah came, and it's happening. There is one small omission, however, in this recitation. They don't quote the part in Isaiah about freeing the oppressed or releasing the captive. Why? Because John's not going to be set free, <laughs> at least not on this earth. He's not going to be released, at least not now. He's going to be martyred, not in spite of his faith, but because of it. And the same thing's going to happen to Jesus on a Friday afternoon at 3 o'clock. The political powers that be will look at him on the tree and say, if you were really the one you wouldn't be hanging there. But their expectations were a little off. More often than not, in the kingdom of this world, faithfulness does not bypass suffering. It bears it. Faithfulness, divine love, doesn't avoid suffering. It absorbs it. It takes it in and then redeems it. I give you an example. Ken Burns, you know the name? Ken Burns? He's done this brief little documentary on country music. Was it 16 hours? Some of you are going to have to binge to see it. I haven't seen but about 90 minutes of it. Before that one, he did a series. He did a PBS series on jazz music. And he was talking about Duke Ellington, and he has this great quote from Duke Ellington. Duke was asked about his feelings at one point of not being able as a black man to stay in the same guest rooms of the hotels where he had performed because of segregation. How do you feel about that? And this is what he said. Listen to this. I took the energy that it takes to pout, and I wrote some blues. Take the A train, if you ain't got that swing, we still hear his music. I took the energy that it takes to pout, and I absorbed the pain, and I wrote music. 
He took the dissonance and discord of racism and made music. Sounds like the gospel to me. I remember something that my father once said to me when I was a young pastor, I'd had a great disappointment. I was 30 years old, a great frustration that caused me to question my calling. And I told him and he listened and then he said something that I'll never forget. He said, son, I think you may discover if you hold on to Jesus that sometimes our disappointments can become his appointments. Provided that you don't turn from Christ in your disappointment, but to Christ. Boy, was he ever right. One final word. Last Wednesday morning, our staff, under the direction of Ellen Garrett, reenacted the nativity for our preschoolers. We did it in the chapel. Uh, Several of our clergy, as you can see, had a part. Uh, We typecast many of them. You see Allison's a shepherd. You see Shelby as the mother Mary. You see the wise men, wise people, I should say. Uh, James was an angel. He was the only one not typecast. I don't understand that. (laughs) But I was the narrator. You can't see Greg and myself. Greg was choreographing with the music, and I was narrating. Someday I'm going to actually have a part. All I do is narrate, even here, just narrate. And so as I narrated the story, the shepherds would come, the wise men, and then they sort of assembled up into the chancel in the chapel, the living nativity. We sang Joy to the World after everyone was together, and then each teacher would take her class, row by row, line by line, and they would stand in front of the chancel and observe the characters. This is the angle from the baby Jesus, as you can see. Some were very reticent. Some were scared to death, actually, to get too close. They hesitated, but there was one little girl. I wish I had her picture, face full of wonder. She, she got to the chancel and she couldn't stop herself. She just climbed all the way up. She's touching everything. She's touching the lamb. She's touching the donkey. She's touching the cradle. She's touching the hay. She can't stop. She touches the baby. And suddenly Mary, played by Shelby Slowey, says, though it wasn't written in the script, Jesus loves you. And you should have seen the face of that child break into a smile that brought tears to the whole living nativity, a face full of wonder and awe that I've noticed sometimes escapes us when we grow older. Finally, her teacher, all the other students were gone, her teacher had to come and lead her out because she wasn't through basking in the love, touching the cradle. And when I saw that, I knew the message of Advent. The one who is to come is not going to distance himself from us. He's close enough to touch. You can feel him in the water, in the word, in the music, 
and even in the captivity of your own disappointment, his touch confirms what we confess. He is the one to come. And he's coming again. And so as for me and my house, we're through with the waiting. We don't have to wait for anybody else but him. Even in our disappointments, we are expecting. And just the thought of his presence brings unspeakable joy, which no one or no thing can ever take away. May it be so, in Jesus' name.